Nearly 90% of the global population live in countries that do not support the new Cold War on Russia and the proxy war in Ukraine. Only 13% of people in the world live in countries that have imposed sanctions on Russia over the war in Ukraine. 87% of people on planet Earth, the vast majority of the global population, live in countries that have not enforced sanctions on Russia. And many of those governments have actually condemned the sanctions on Russia and condemned the proxy war in Ukraine and called for a peace and an end to the war. I've talked about this in previous analysis, but today I want to look at a very interesting article that was published by two former U.S. diplomats, including a former U.S. ambassador in the media outlet Newsweek. Newsweek is a mainstream outlet, but it does sometimes allow for a little criticism of U.S. foreign policy. And this September, it published a fascinating op-ed titled, Nearly 90% of the World Isn't Following Us on Ukraine. It's by two former U.S. diplomats, Michael Gefoler and David Rundell. Now, I'm going to summarize some of the main parts of this article, but I'm going to introduce who these two co-authors are here. David Rundell is the former chief of mission at the U.S. Embassy in Saudi Arabia. Michael Gefoler is a former U.S. ambassador and a former political advisor to U.S. Central Command, that is the U.S. military. The website of the Armenian embassy in the U.S. posted a more lengthy bio for this guy. This is, again, one of the co-authors. Ambassador Gefoler served in, for 26 years as a U.N. Foreign Service officer his career included service in Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Iraq, Russia, Armenia, Moldova, Poland, and Belgium. He also served as the senior political advisor to General David Petraeus, the former top U.S. general and CIA director. So just keep that in mind, keep that background in mind when I'm going through this article here, because what's incredible is that these two former U.S. diplomats in this article, they basically acknowledge that everything that anti-imperialists have been saying is correct. That everything that I've been saying in my analyses about the decline of U.S. unipolar hegemony, the fundamental crisis in the imperialist world system and U.S. capitalism, these two U.S. diplomats who spent decades working for the U.S. empire, they admit that that analysis is correct. So it's a very revealing and very important article. I'm going to go through some of the main points here and, and comment on them. So these two former U.S. diplomats acknowledge our familiar system of global political and economic alliances is shifting and nothing has made this change clearer than the varied reactions to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. While the United States and its closest allies in Europe and Asia have imposed tough economic sanctions on Moscow, 87% of the world's population has declined to follow us. That is, again, only 13% of the world's population live in countries that have imposed sanctions on Russia over the proxy war in Ukraine. Here is a map of those countries. Only the US, Canada, Britain, the European Union, Australia, and Japan have imposed sanctions on Russia over the war in Ukraine. South Korea did at first, initially, when Russia invaded in February 2022. But since then, South Korea has actually 
been trying to improve its relations with Russia, largely because it wants to import more Russian energy. So it's the the U.S.-led imperialist bloc, the so-called West and Japan. Those are the countries that have imposed sanctions on Russia. The vast majority, 87% of the global population, are in countries outside of that. And yet the Western media and Western governments act as though they represent the entire world. The Biden administration constantly talks about the so-called rules-based order in which Washington makes the rules and orders everyone around. And they talk about, you know, the international community when in reality they don't represent the international community. They only represent 13% of the global population in the so-called West. And 87% is not with them. So let me go back to this article here. These two former U.S. diplomats acknowledge that we're in, the, in a second Cold War. They refer to it as Cold War II. And they, they note that economic sanctions have united our adversaries in shared resistance against the United States. This is exactly what the leftist economist Michael Hudson has been saying in his analysis of U.S. imperialism and the weaponization of the dollar and the financial system unifying the targets of U.S. imperialism together against U.S. imperialism. These are two former U.S. diplomats admitting that's true. They also acknowledge that the, new, the second Cold War has also led countries that were once partners or non-aligned to become increasingly multi-aligned. So what they're acknowledging is the rise of a multipolar world. Again, this is a very revealing article. They say, nowhere is this shift more apparent than in energy markets, where unlike with currencies, governments cannot simply print what they need. Here, the web of sanctions becomes a sieve. So obviously you can't print more you know, oil or gas that you need to heat your houses and run your industry. The US can print dollars, but it can't print energy to provide to Europe. This article notes, Saudi Arabia, long a committed American partner, has established a close alliance with Russia in OPEC+. The Saudis have very publicly declined the request of an American president, that is Biden, to increase oil production. Instead, Saudi Arabia is importing Russian oil for domestic use and exporting their own oil. What they don't mention is the reason they're doing that is because Russia is offering these countries in the global south oil below market value, these very good deals. And the only reason that Russia can do that is because the Russian oil industry is run by the state. It's not run by for-profit private corporations, like in the Western neoliberal capitalist model. Yes, Russia is not socialist, but Russia has significant state control over significant parts of the economy, especially over natural resources, which are largely nationally owned, publicly owned. And the largest company in Russia is Gazprom, the gas giant, which owns the natural gas in, in Russia. All the natural gas and oil in the U.S. belongs to private corporations. They're the, ones, they're the ones mining it and extracting it and selling it for money. Russia can do it through its state-owned oil, state oil and gas companies and then sell it to other countries below market value. And then Saudi Arabia is doing that. And then it's using that for the oil needs domestically and then selling its own oil on the market to make money. <laughs> so obviously, you know, Saudi Arabia is by no means in any way some kind of anti-imperialist bastion. It's a horrible reactionary regime. 
They also have their own economic national interests, which are not the same as the interests of U.S. imperialism. And they're acting in their own interests, which in this moment are against the interests of U.S. imperialism. So these former U.S. diplomats are acknowledging these major cracks in the imperialist world system that have been emerging. Well, they've been there for a long time, but the proxy war in Ukraine has just been making those cracks drastically grow larger and larger, and, and the system's on the verge of, of breaking. China is selling Europe liquid natural gas that originated in Siberia, that is Russia, while importing Russian oil at the same time. So Europe says, we refuse to, to buy Russian energy. So they're buying it from China, which is actually just selling Europe Russian energy. It's insane. Meanwhile, Iran is selling its oil to China, getting around the illegal unilateral U.S. sanctions. And Iran is buying Russian wheat, they point out. They continue. Even India, which has a very right-wing pro-Western government, the, the most pro-U.S. government in the, the modern history of India since its independence from British colonialism in 1947, it was governed by the Congress Party, which previously had been socialist-leaning and allied with the Soviet Union. They, they became neoliberal in the 1990s. They lost power. And in 2014, the far-right... Hindu nationalist BJP party came to power and they have been the most pro-US right-wing government in India. Even they have their own economic interests, which is saying, sorry, we actually have to act against some US interests in order to act on behalf of our national interests. And these two former US diplomats acknowledge India's petroleum minister stated publicly that his government has no conflict with Moscow and has a quote, moral duty to keep down energy prices at home by buying Russian oil. Once again, it's because it's in India's national interest. It's, it's economic interests. It is buying Russian energy for below market value for very cheap, which means that average people in India, working people are benefiting from this. And once again, the US can't do that because the oil and gas in the US is run by private for-profit corporations. They don't care about economic, uh, they don't care about the geopolitical interests of the U.S. empire. They care about their own economic self-interest, their own corporate bottom line. So they're not going to sell India oil below market value. So obviously India, despite the fact that it's ideologically oriented toward the West and, and very critical of China, there are conf conflicts between India and China. Still, India has its own economic self-interest. I mean, this, these are incredible world historic developments that we're seeing. And these U.S. diplomats, they're some of the few who clearly aren't stupid. They, they can see what's happening. So let me continue reading part of this article here. They note that alliances that were created in part to counter Western economic and political influence are expanding. Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey have announced their interest in joining the BRICS system, that is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. They also don't mention that Iran and Argentina are likely going to be joining BRICS soon. In addition, you have the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which brings together 40% of global population and more than one-third of global GDP, GDP. That includes China and India, the two most most populous countries on earth, as well as Russia and Pakistan, massive countries as well, and Central Asia. In fact, just this month on September 15th and 16th, 
the Shanghai Cooperation Organization met in Samarkand, Uzbekistan, and Iran signed an official agreement to become a full member. And you can see there's a photo showing the heads of state of the members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, including Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, uh, leaders in, you know, from the leaders of India and Pakistan and numerous Central Asian countries. So this Asian political and economic bloc is growing, it's expanding, and the US-led Western imperialist bloc is facing more and more resistance around the world. Let me continue here from this article by these two former US diplomats. They note that Bahrain, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar are likely to become dialogue partners or candidate members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And actually, here is the website, the official website of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And on September 16th, they announced that the Shanghai Cooperation Organization signed memorandums of understanding giving official dialogue partner status to Egypt and Qatar, which are longtime Western allies, Egypt and Qatar. So this international system, the imperialist world system created by the U.S., after World War II, it is really drastically changing. And I'm not saying that it's going to collapse overnight, but we're seeing significant fractures emerging. And these two former U.S. diplomats acknowledge that. In this article in Newsweek, they point out that, that China's ambitious Belt and Road Initiative is helping to build infrastructure around the world, and especially in large parts of Africa. They point out that Russia is reaching out to Africa and Asia, that, it had, that uh, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, had a, a tour of numerous African countries and met with the Arab League. And they also point out that Russia has strengthened its military relationships with Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba. Brazil and Mexico, which have the biggest economies and populations in all of the region, have refused to back Western sanctions against Russia. I should also point out that Mexico's left-wing president, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, has proposed a peace deal to try to end the proxy war in Ukraine, working with the Pope, Pope Francis, and also with India and the United Nations to try to broker a peace agreement to end the proxy war in Ukraine. And what happened? The West rejected AMLO, that's the Mexican president. The West rejected AMLO's peace deal, proposed peace deal to end the proxy war. And I have a separate video and podcast and article at multipolarista.com showing how the same thing happened in April, how Ukraine and Russia had negotiated a peaceful settlement to the conflict and the West destroyed that because they want to continue waging this proxy war in order to bleed Russia, to weaken Russia, as U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said. And President López Obrador of Mexico, he said in this tweet that he posted on September 18th, he reiterated his offer to negotiate peace in Ukraine. And he said he, said he repeats it because many don't know about it and others rejected it because of sectarianism and elite interests. So that's clearly him criticizing the West for rejecting his peace proposal. Again, this is Mexico. This is a country that has a massive border with the U.S. that has traditionally been very subservient to U.S. imperialism. And the U.S. is Mexico's largest trading partner. 
And Mexico is the U.S.'s largest trading partner. But even Andres Manuel López Obrador, the Mexican president, is being much more independent. And of course, that angers the U.S. as well. So going back to this article from the two former U.S. diplomats, they point out that the U.S. dollar's reserve currency status remains a pillar of the global economic order. That is to say, U.S. imperialism. But trust in that order has been damaged. So they also acknowledge what Michael Hudson has been saying, this leftist economist, that the status of the U.S. dollar as the de facto global reserve currency is being threatened by the very aggressive crimes of U.S. imperialism itself. They point out that economic sanctions have weaponized parts of the international banking and insurance sectors, including the SWIFT fund transfer system. Assets have been seized and commodity contracts canceled. This is a euphemistic way of saying that the U.S. government, the U.S. empire, is acting as a geopolitical pirate, stealing the assets of Venezuela, billions of dollars of Venezuelan assets. Of Afghanistan, the U.S. government has frozen $9 billion of central bank assets belonging to the Afghan people, and the U.S. refuses to give that money back. The U.S. and Europe did the same thing to Russia stealing Russia's central bank reserves held in Western banks. And this is all weakening the very same imperialist system created by the United States after World War II, the Bretton Woods system, to the extent that it still exists. These former U.S. diplomats point out that calls for de-dollarization have become louder. When Russia demanded energy payments in rubles, its own currency, yuan, the Chinese currency, or the UAE's currency, the Durham, China and India complied. So we see the, the hegemony of the U.S. dollar is declining. It's not going to disappear overnight, but they're acknowledging that it's, it's declining. Many Asian economies are now being hit by both rising oil prices and the depreciation of their own currency against the dollar. As a result, they are expanding their use of bilateral currency swaps, which allows them to trade among themselves in their own currencies. That is also weakening the hegemony of the U.S. dollar, which weakens U.S. imperialism. And the U.S., of course, is the leader of the capitalist world system based in Wall Street. So we're seeing a fundamental shift in this global, this capitalist, its imperialist world system. 80 years ago, the British pound lost its preeminent position among the world's currencies with the collapse of the British Empire after World War II and the rise of U.S. dollar hegemony. This is precisely what America's adversaries are trying to do to the dollar. And if the Saudis ever stop pricing oil in dollars, they may very well succeed. I talked about this with the economist Michael Hudson in a separate video and podcast about Saudi Arabia's announcement that it is considering selling oil to China in the Chinese Yuan, which is upending the past 50 years of the petrodollar. Since the 1970s, Saudi Arabia has been selling its oil in the dollar. That is what helps underwrite the power of the hegemony of the U.S. dollar. And it, now after 50 years, Saudi Arabia is potentially going to weaken the hegemony of the U.S. dollar. You can, you can be sure that the U.S. empire is, is very angry. That's why Biden recently took a trip to Saudi Arabia to try to convince Riyadh to break its ties with China and Russia. And interestingly, Saudi Arabia is actually not listening for once.
global. So here, the former U.S. diplomats, they say globalization can function only if most participants believe it advances their interests. But as I said many times in my analysis, when they say globalization, they don't actually mean globalization. They mean neoliberal globalization. They mean U.S. imperialism. As I constantly point out, globalization has existed for thousands of years. There has been trade and migration and interaction between countries and even before modern nation states existed for thousands of years. You can go back to Greece and Rome and Persia and the ancient Chinese dynasties and Japanese dynasties and the indigenous the indigenous civilizations in the Americas, the modern day Americas, there was always globalization. The Americas were not discovered by European colonialists. They were colonized. There were already people living there. They weren't discovered. It wasn't the new world. And the Silk Road is an example of early globalization. The, China talks about building the new Silk Road. Well, what about the original Silk Road? So these U.S. diplomats, of course, they still are blinded in some ways by U.S. imperialism because they served that system for so long. So when they talk about globalization. They mean neoliberal globalization led by U.S. imperialism. But they recognize that if the rest of the world believe the West is unfairly using the system, that is the international financial system, for its own benefit, the rules-based international order falls apart and alternatives will emerge. Of course, like I said, they have their own bias. They still are former imperial apparatchiks for you know the U.S. imperial order. They were part and parcel of the U.S. imperialist system. They were diplomats. So they, they still talk about this nonsense of the so-called rules-based international order. I mean, the U.S. violates international law more than any other country on earth every day, every hour. So obviously this is part of the propaganda. But what they are right about, and this is true, alternatives are emerging to the U.S. imperialist system. Today, inflationary pressures and recession fears stalk much of the world. While the wealthy West can afford the cost of sanctions, much of the rest of the world cannot. Europe now com competes with countries like Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, and Thailand for energy shipments. This is acknowledging that, all right, Russia's not going to sell its energy to the West. All right, that's fine. Russia can sell its energy to Asia. That's fine with Russia. In North Africa and the Middle East, Energy and food shortages have raised the prospect of political unrest. These concerns are generating, generating considerable anti-Western sentiment across much of the global South. While a nuclear-armed Russia shows no willingness to end a war its leaders cannot afford to lose, the West is rapidly losing the rest and thus undermining the very rules-based international order it has sought to create. Once again, this shows their own bias of these former U.S. diplomats. There is no such thing as the international order, the rules-based international order. There is international law established by the United Nations. The U.S. empire, U.S. imperialism, has been trying to replace the United Nations and international law with this concept of the so-called rules-based international order in which the U.S. empire and Wall Street capitalists make the rules and order everyone around. They're, they're talking about U.S. imperialism. There's no such thing as the rules-based order. There is international law with its basis 
in the United Nations. And because the U.S. is losing the support of so many parts of the global south, which represent the majority of the global population, that's why the U.S. has been attacking the United Nations, attacking international law, and trying to replace it with the so-called rules-based order. But these diplomats are acknowledging that that system is coming apart. It's, it's weakening. And they say that they call for a diplomatic compromise. They, they acknowledge the fundamental crisis in the imperialist system led by the United States based in Wall Street. So this is a very revealing article by two former U.S. diplomats. Unfortunately, the fact that it's published in Newsweek and not Foreign Policy or Foreign Affairs, which are the two main you know, establishment uh, ruling class publications in Washington, the fact that it's not published there, I think makes it clear that these diplomats were probably rejected by foreign policy and foreign affairs. The little bubble of imperialist apparatchiks represented by the, the Council of Foreign Relations, which, of course, is the arm of Wall Street represented in the State Department by Wall Street capitalists. They didn't publish this article. It was Newsweek they were pub that published this article. So it shows that even though these two guys are lifelong career U.S. diplomats, they're not mainstream. And their words of warning are not being recognized by mainstream media outlets. Before I conclude here, I just want to point out that I have a separate video podcast and article at multipolarista.com about this. This was published back in March, quite early on in this new phase of the proxy war in Ukraine. And it's titled, Many Global South Countries Blame U.S. and NATO for Ukraine War, Not Russia. And I point out that South Africa, Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, North Korea, and Eritrea all explicitly blamed the U.S. and NATO for the proxy war in Ukraine. Meanwhile, China, India, Pakistan, Brazil, Ethiopia, Bangladesh, Mexico, Vietnam, and much, a huge part of the African continent are neutral. They represent the majority of the global population. So this is an article that I published back in March acknowledging this, but now we see these two former U.S. diplomats are, are admitting that it's true, that what we anti-imperialists have been saying for months now is true. 87% of the global population is not going along with the West's new Cold War on Russia and also China, of course. Wall Street's journal itself, the voice of Wall Street capitalists, published an article in April acknowledging the same thing titled Anti-Russia Alliance is Missing a Big Block, the Developing World. That's their euphemistic way of saying the majority of the global population. They acknowledge that India, Brazil, and South Africa are not on board with this proxy war. Even in the United Nations, when there was a vote to kick out Russia from the UN Human Rights Council, only 24 countries voted to kick out Russia. 58 countries abstained from that vote including India, Brazil, Mexico, Indonesia, South Africa. These are massive countries representing billions of people in the global south. They, this article in Wall Street Journal points out that Mexico's president, AMLO, has refused to criticize Russia. So th this is something that has been staring the U.S. ruling class in the face, and they, of course, of course refuse to acknowledge it. And, and what, has been, what has been the response of the Western propaganda organs and the ruling class in the U.S. and Europe. 
Their response has been to demonize the global south with racist stereotypes. Here is a ridiculous, condescending, borderline racist article in the Financial Times that was published in June. And it was published by this guy, Janan Ganesh, who is a British conservative of Indian descent, but a raised and educated in elite British schools. And he started, he originally was a Blairite in the neoliberal wing of the Labour Party. And now he's just a straight up Tory. He's a straight up conservative. And he was given a column at the, at the Financial Times to help provide, you know, uh, to, tr to write these articles that are just basically another version of racist imperialist propaganda against the global south. But because he's of Indian descent, people say, well, it's not racist, you know, even though he's just representing the views of British imperialism. And this ridiculous condescending article is titled, Don't Romanticize the Global South. Its sympathy for Russia should change Western liberal sentimental view of the developing world. And he points out, no event this century has done as much as the Ukraine war to expose the difference in outlook between the West and the rest. Uh, no event uh, in this century. Uh, what about the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, the NATO war that destroyed Libya, the Western proxy war in Syria? the Western proxy war in Yemen. The, I mean, there's so many examples. The constant attacks on Iran, the U.S. assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the brutal sanctions against Cuba and the DPRK and Iran and Eritrea and Zimbabwe. I mean, this once again shows the blinders that these Western imperialists have. They think that this war in Ukraine is the first war since World War II. They truly think that. They have ignored the millions of people killed by the U.S. military since World War II in Vietnam, in Korea, in Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria, Libya, the brutal U.S.-backed genocide in Indonesia, in Bangladesh. They ignore all that history and say, big bad Putin, Russia. So this article points out that the Anglosphere, European, and Japanese sanctions should not be mistaken for a truly global front against Vladimir Putin. That's true. Russia retains a net positive reputation in Egypt, Vietnam, India, and other countries. Pro-Russia protests have flared up in West and Central Africa. Once again, if you get outside of the little bubble of the West, you can see this clearly. There is life outside of the West. I, I, can't, I constantly need to remind people that there is life outside of the imperialist bubble in the West. They note this article points out by this conservative who is very condescending about the global South. He acknowledges that much of this global South support for Russia stems from their own resentment of the West's record of conquest and from the fact that the Soviet Union, of course, Russia is no longer the Soviet Union, but back when it was the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union supported the Global South in their anti-colonial liberation struggles against Western colonialism and imperialism. And this condescending British Tory, he, he talks about so-called soft racism of holding non-white nations to a lower moral standard, as if the imperialist West that is standing on 
the the corpses of millions of people killed in their imperialist wars and their colonialist genocide in the settler colonization of the Americas as if they have a moral standard. And then he, he, he once again, this British conservative, he talks about in the aftermath of empire, as if imperialism ended. They tr these British imperialists truly think that imperialism ended because the formal colonization ended, but neo-colonialism continued, as the Ghanaian socialist leader Nkrumah pointed out. We're in the neo-colonialist era of capitalism. Imperialism never ended. But he says, in the aftermath of empire, it made sense to attribute special virtue to recently subjugated peoples. To keep it up forever starts to look like its own kind of paternalism. This condescending, racist, ridiculous imperialist rhetoric. And they say, to stand up for Ukraine now, one must be willing to knock the halo off a lot of countries. That is to say, be racist and condescending toward the global south and act as if they somehow don't support human rights. Only the West has a moral standard, ignoring the hundreds of U.S. military interventions just since the end of the first Cold War in 1991. I have a separate report about that at Multipolarista. 251 U.S. military interventions just since 1991. But this British Tory is going to ignore those 251 U.S. military interventions and just talk about the big bad Russian boogeyman. He says, it means waiting against half a century of post-colonial theory about where moral authority lies in the world. He's, of course, implying that the moral authority lies in the imperialist West. He says, it is easy and right to implore the likes of France and Russia, France and Germany to do more for Ukraine. It is more transgressive to suggest that poorer nations are being cavalier in their attitude to the global order or selective in their opposition to imperialism. He uses the word imperialism to refer to Russia, not to the British empire that this British conservative supports or the U.S. empire that he supports. He says, the larger point is that the global south loses by way of infantilization. Nothing is as first world as being treated as a grown-up. So this is this goes to show that you know you can find these people of Indian descent in in Britain who still have racist, condescending views toward the global south and internalized colonialism and are just gonna write this ridiculous imperialist propaganda for the Financial Times, which is the voice of the British capitalist class. So the point is that these are the responses we see of Western imperialists to the, to the realization, they, they can see very clearly that the US-led imperialist world system has major cracks emerging in the system. The US-led capitalist hegemony, the unilateral hegemony that it had, unipolar hegemony that it had over the world after the end of the first Cold War is no longer. It is gone. It's dead. And we're seeing the rise of a new international system and these Western imperialists, they just can't get over it. Well, let me take that back. There are a few rational people in Washington who can clearly see this. And that's why I wanted to point out this article in Newsweek and contrast it against the other ridiculous propaganda in the media. There are a few people 
recognizing what's happening. And if you read their article closely in Newsweek, these two U.S. diplomats say, what we need is a, is a diplomatic solution. Instead of a new Cold War, we need a diplomatic solution. And what I would add is that we need the end of imperialism. The U.S. needs to go to being a normal country, not the global hegemon, not, not an empire, a normal country that integrates into the international law-based system, not the so-called rules-based order in which the U.S. makes the rules and order every, orders everyone around. The international law-based system, which means that when the U.S. invades countries and imposes illegal unilateral sanctions and violates international law, it should be held accountable. But of course, the U.S. capitalist class is never going to allow that to happen. So I'll be here reporting on all of the latest developments in the second Cold War. This has been Norton for Multipolarista. I'll see you next time.